Welcome everybody to tonight's event. Welcome to the Forum for European Philosophy. Welcome to the interdisciplinary panel on progress and human development. It's uh, my pleasure to introduce our panelists tonight. We have uh, Catherine Oda. She's a visiting fellow at the Department of Philosophy here at the LSE. Uh, she translated the works of John Rawls into French. She works on the history of liberalism and also more recently, I understand, on the topic of tonight's panel. Next to her, we have uh, Professor Paul Anand. He's a professor of economics at the Open University. Uh, broad interests ranging from the foundations of decision and social choice theory, welfare economics with a philosophical bent, I would say, um, recently working on the operationalization, operationalization um, of the capabilities approach, making it workable for a policy context, um, which he'll talk about tonight. And to his right, we have Professor Joe Wolfe, a professor of philosophy at University College London, also Dean of Humanities there, a philosopher with a bit of a public policy bent, working on many public policy committees, um, recently wrote a book on ethics and public policy. Um, the format for tonight will be, we'll have uh, Joe Wolfe speak first, um, Paul Anand will speak second, we'll hear from Catherine Oudin. That's the initial input stage. We'll have a second stage where the speakers have a chance to react to each other and comment on what they have been saying. And then we'll relatively quickly open it up um, to the audience, take your questions on board, and have a discussion back and forth between the panel and the audience. So without further ado, thank you very much for coming tonight. Thank you very much for coming tonight. And I hand over to Joe for his initial input. Okay, well, uh, thank you very much indeed. Um, I think I'm going to be fairly brief in my comments with the idea of uh, trying to have as much time for discussion and for the panel to respond to each other. Um, but I want to start with um, the Academy of Dijon's prize essay competition of 1750, which was, um, has the restoration of the sciences and the arts contributed to the purification or the corruption of morality. Uh, this was the prize essay question that led to Rousseau's first discourse, Discourse on the Arts and Sciences. So the Academy were interested in whether the restoration of the sciences and the arts had led to the purifica purification of morality. And of course, in 1750, in the French Enlightenment spirit, they were expecting only positive answers to this. Um, they got apparently quite a number of positive answers and one negative answer from Rousseau, who won the competition. And in his confessions, he talks about how uh, he was on his way to visit um, Voltaire in prison or Diderot? Diderot. Diderot in prison. He was on his way to visit Diderot in prison. He saw pinned to a tree the poster announcing the competition. That moment he saw it and the truth came to him and he sat down on the tree in floods of tears and wrote the whole essay, or at least the first draft. And you know, his view was that, of course, the sciences and the arts had led to the corruption of morality. And in the discourse, he gives a number of examples where uh, the development of sciences and arts had led to a type of corruption of society, which was then immediately followed by loss in war and the end of the society as a whole. So he has this pattern of knowledge, corruption, and dissolution, really. 
What was his argument? Well, not much argument, lots of rhetoric, um, but he gives some examples which are, are telling now. So um, he gives examples of things which he says, when they're introduced, they give us a lot of pleasure, we think. But soon we get used to them, and then um, we don't notice them, we don't enjoy them, and then we only notice their disappearance, or if they break, and then that makes us terribly miserable. So think of your mobile phone. Are we coming back to your mobile phone? Uh, before mobile phones, somehow we got by. I'm not sure how, but we did. Uh, we're all here uh, from an era of pre-mobile phones. Um, maybe you enjoy it. Maybe this is a bad example. But um, the time you notice it most is when it breaks. And most of the time you just take it for granted. And then when it breaks and you don't have one, it makes you much more miserable than you would have been had you not had one. And Rousseau thinks this is a pattern for technological development, that technological developments improve our happiness for a very short time, then we go back to normal, and then when they break, they break, we descend to a level of misery, or if we lose them, we descend to a level of misery. This is um, it's been rediscovered, it's probably rediscovered every 10 years or something. It's currently uh, called the hedonic treadmill or hedonic traps the idea that you know, we chase these things. And we can all remember in our childhood really wanting something, and that was going to make all the difference. And when you lost it, it made no difference. And that seemed very strange at the time. But for Rousseau, that is all, all there is. Okay, so I'm not going to endorse that completely. Um, but the question that the Academy asks does make us realize that um, there's going to be more than one way of measuring progress. That there's does progress in the arts and sciences lead to progress in morality? Rousseau said no, it didn't. It took us in the other direction. So that question alone shows us that progress is not a simple matter. So what do we mean by progress? Well, thinking about what I was going to say today, there are so many ways in which we could approach this, but I thought I'd take a fairly simple-minded view and think, you know, when I'm telling students... What's so, good about they, you know, what's so good about our times now compared to earlier times, whenever those earlier times? What are the things I would say, or what are the things that I'd say? So, you know, recently I've been doing work on poverty. I've been looking at Roundtree. To my shame, I haven't been looking at Booth very much, which I should be in this institution. If you look at Roundtree's work uh, in York 100 years ago, uh, he has a description of how people lived, and it's clear... You know, Many people, a high percentage of the population, were not uh, able to obtain a diet that was nutritious and sustained them. They had very poor access to water, so very often for poor people, there were four or five houses to a single standpipe. And they were also sharing latrines to the same degree or more, and quite often these were in a disgusting condition. It's an amazing thing. If you had a chance to look at Roundtree's book on, on York, uh, he, his inspectors inspected every house in the poor neighborhoods in York, and they wrote down one or two sentences about each one. So you have sentences like, uh, husband works, wife drinks, house very dirty, children barefoot, uh, standpipe shared with five other houses, and so on. So you get those little descriptions of what it was like. And there were many people living in what now seems abject poverty. Comparing that to the standard of living people have now, it seems there's no doubt there's an improvement. So 
So in terms of standard of living, virtually at every point in the income scale, maybe not every point, but most points in the income scale, people have far better living conditions than they did 100 years ago, and they do in this country compared to other countries. So that seems to me an obvious measure of progress. And I wouldn't go so far as some writers. Um, what I was recently reading a paper on global justice, and if I remember it correctly, uh, the author said, for most, of human, for most of human history, most human beings have lived in abject misery. Um, I think that may be true by our standards, that if we were put in the conditions of those people, we would be now living, we would be in abject misery. But I think it's rather far-fetched to think that most human beings have lived in abject misery. There's certainly a good deal of adaptation one can have to one's circumstances. But anyway, there's clear progress in terms of standard of living. Um, there's also clear progress, I think, in your mobile phone, I, or more accurately, in information technology. If you think about the developments in, in information technology just in the last 20 years, it really is a remarkable thing. And it's not just about information, but it's about communication with other people and the way in which we can keep connected with others uh, and have a much wider social life and wider social community than we have had before. But the thing that really uh, interests me is not standard of living information technology or other inventions. But you know, when I tell students about you know, how the world has changed, uh, one example I often give is uh, I can remember a time when uh, women would be paid less than men, well, they still are, sadly, in many jobs, but a time when it was perfectly legal to advertise a job with two rates of pay, one for men and one for women there would be about a 10 to 15% discount just because it was a woman in the job. And there was no pretense that it was a different job. There was no pretense a woman couldn't do the same work or was working for fewer hours. Just because it was a woman, she was paid 15% less. And I remember this because there used to be a TV program, a jokey TV program called That's Life, where they would read out little nuggets of uh, amusing nuggets from the local newspaper, and one thing I remember is Esther Ransom holding up this uh, advertisement for an equal pay officer for the London Bar at Walthamstow, I think it was. And you can guess the rest. It was advertised with two different rates of pay, right, for the equal pay officer. Um, and if you've seen the film, I think almost no one has seen the film Made in Dagenham. It's apparently not a very good film, so I'm told. But um, no, this is about the struggle for equal pay. When was that? That was in the 1970s. I was born at the very end of the 1950s. Well, it was illegal to be homosexual, or at least illegal to have homosexual relations in the 1950s. So I had capital punishment. Abortion, I think, was illegal or you know, highly restricted and so on. So when I think about progress, I don't think mostly about standards of living. I think about equality, emancipation, liberation. And I think that John Stuart Mill, in, of all places, utilitarianism, gets this just about right. So let me just read out something he says. That, um, he's taught, it's a long passage. I won't read it all. He's talking about social inequalities. And, and he says, um, you know, one by one, customs or institutions, from being a supposed primary necessity of social existence, inequalities that were a supposed primary necessity of social existence, have passed into the rank of a universally stigmatized injustice and tyranny. 
So it has been with the distinction of slaves and freemen, nobles and serfs, patricians and plebeians, and so it will be, and in part already is, with the aristocracies of colour, race and sex. And we might add sexual preference, we might add other things about ethnicity, other things about religion. So when I think about progress now, I think of excluded groups, marginalised groups, oppressed groups, and the ending of those forms of oppression. And anything to do with uh, standard of living, information technology, these seem to pale into insignificance. How then do we theorise this? How do we measure it? Um, well, we, we could measure it simply in terms of inequalities ending. We might try to link it to the capability approach. Um, we can discuss that later. I will leave the other panellists to talk about the capability approach. So that's all I wanted to say in these comments. Thank you very much, and over to Paul, who has a PowerPoint. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to, to, to be here. Um, I think I might be the sort of light empirical relief in between the, the uh, ends of a philosophical sandwich, but let's, let's, let's see. Um, I, 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 too, share the view that uh, progress is, is, is not just a question of uh, issues um, and I want to share with you a sort of a, a very brief overview of some of the work that we've been doing over the past sort of 10 to 15 years that tries to engage with this, this idea. Um, and because I've been working in a, in a sort of an economics environment, we have been trying to, to measure progress in terms of um, people's capabilities, what they're able to do in a, in a very social sense. So what I want to, to underline what I'm going to say, I want to suggest that um, we, we do have a good theory uh, for, for assessing progress in this social way. It's a theory developed by uh, Amartya Sen and uh, elaborated by a political scientist uh, called Michael Nussbaum. Uh, we can stretch their framework right over the life course so they talk about capabilities, but we can use this to, to engage with and understand well-being uh, right throughout the life spectrum. Um, and finally, I want to suggest that, well, it'll be implicit in what I say, but I think I, I don't want to equate well-being with progress, but I think it would be a pretty strange sort of concept of progress if it didn't have well-being somewhere, somewhere in it. So that's what I need to share with a little uh, sort of a, a very brief overview of sort of classical utilitarianism and welfare economics. So most of the last century, um, for a large part of it anyway, economists uh, basically spent the time translating classical utilitarianism into welfare economics and cost-benefit analysis. And so we have some very well-defined and refined and, and, and sophisticated tools that, that are a, a direct translation of ideas that you find in Bentham and Mill and so on. But in the sort of late 70s and early 80s, uh, a number of people said, well, what about other kinds of... There are, there are problems <laughs> with utilitarianism. What about other kinds of claims, like rights, responsibilities? What about other kinds of outcomes, like freedoms or autonomy or agency? 
Um, what about the distribution of these things within society? We're not just interested in maximising the, the, the sum or the total across society. We're interested in people at the bottom, um, perhaps. And then what about, you know, wh- whose preferences count? What preferences matter? Some people, there are some preferences, actually, that we, we don't want to take into account. So all of those are, are well-described and uh, well-known issues in, in the literature. But Sen also says, what about, you know, when you're kind of doing this in practice, you've got to think what dimensions matter to people? What's the space in which well-being actually takes place? So that's really what we've been trying to, trying to do. A little bit of, um, a little bit of theory. So um, Sen says there are three kinds of outcomes that you might be interested in. Uh, you might be interested in generating activities or states, and these depend on the resources that you have and your abilities to convert those resources uh, into the, the, things that you, the things that you value. Um, he also says that, that happiness, in an experiential sense, the sort of thing that psychologists measure, that matters too. And he, but he points out that, that there are things you can't very easily measure or haven't very easily been measured up to now, and they have to do with people's opportunities and constraints. And we are concerned about the distribution of opportunities and constraints and so on. So all these, there are three different types of, of outcomes in this, in this framework, and we try to engage with all of those. Um, there's a little bit of work there in the, um, um, in the literature, and we, we've, we've developed some, some lists. The OECD... The statistics directorate there has also um, developed this. And actually, they're, they're highly, as you can see, they're highly multidimensional. They cover a wide range of issues in life. Um, and although the wording is, is different from list to list, actually there's a lot of commonality between these. There's a lot of convergence in these sorts of lists. A few years ago, people would say, well, I word the question this way or that way. Actually, a lot of people are now saying, well, actually, we're, we're, we're sort of arriving at something that's rather similar. Um, so let me pick out a few, um, a few possible, some of the findings. And I'm going to have to sort of speed up a little bit, but a few, some of the findings that, that we've come across here. Um, so one, one of the things we found is that um, people's experience, life experience, depends on a wide variety of different types of things, at least adult well-being. So lots of things that can make life go well and lots of things that can trip people up. And, and, and actually being constrained is one of the things that actually does make people rather unhappy in an experiential sense. And so um, economists over the past 10, 20 years have been modelling uh, life satisfaction, human happiness extensively. We've thrown in these capability and constraint indicators um, rather recently and we've been able to almost double the amount of explanatory power that these models typically have by adding in capabilities and constraints. Um, we've, there's a lot of interest also now in soft skills um, or sometimes called non-cognitive skills. It's a bit misleading really uh, because they're they're quite hard one, and they certainly are cognitive. But I think, I think what people mean is things that um, don't normally get tested or examined. Um, and we found that we haven't found very strong evidence for, for many of these as yet, except for one, 
and that's the ability to plan ahead. This is highly related to income and life satisfaction. Um, and it could be something to do with what's going on inside people's heads. It could be to do with something to do with being in an environment that's not chaotic and allows you to plan, or it could be a combination of the two. Um, we can use this framework to, to think about deprivation and poverty in a multi-dimensional sense. And so we can ask, you know, are people deprived with respect to things to do with the home, work, community, the physical environment they live in? If we do that, we get a slightly different picture of poverty and deprivation in this country, for example. So instead of saying, you know, there's 20 or 25% of people below a certain threshold or poverty line, we find, for example, that there's about 8% of, this po of, the, of the UK adult population who have low all-round capabilities. Half, they're a bit younger than average, and half of them have a problem with their health. We find another group with a similar sort of profile, and most of these are women. So you can think about deprivation in a slightly different way way uh, using this framework. And then finally, um, we find, this is a, <laughs> we, we ranked what people were said they were able to do in the UK and in the US. And the thing that comes top, curiously enough, is being able to get your rubbish cleared away in the States. Now, why that's, that, 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 that's rather puzzling, actually. Um, it seems like a trivial sort of thing. But then, when you come to think about it, actually, it's quite simple. It's quite salient. And you know, you know the local politicians to go to if it doesn't get done. At least you do in the States. Um, and, and then we also find that actually people say they're, they're, it, it, there's, it's significantly easier for them to get treated by a doctor or a medic in the UK than it is in the States. It's significantly easier for them to get help by the police in the States than it is in the UK. So it's almost as if there's sort of political, there's, a, there's quite an important link between the political economy uh, and political action and different aspects of, of our well-being. Um, I've used up so much <laughs> of my time, I'm going to skip over heaps and heaps of this stuff. But I just want to um, make a, couple, a few more, a couple more points if I can. And so I, I did say that we tried to stretch this framework by looking at uh, very young children, their happiness and well-being, and, and uh, people in older age. Here are some... Act so we've got... This is, this is from a German data set where we have capabilities. These are uh, for these two-year-old children. We have data on the activities that they engage in. And you might want to just have a look at that list and just see which of these activities you think makes them happiest. Just a quick, quick guess, anyone... Wild guess. Lots of people will have had children. You might, you might know. Singing. Um, well, actually, um, re reading with a parent is is one thing, uh, and rather sadly, uh, shopping uh, is another. So it's a born consumers, it seems. Um, what, but more important than, than what makes children happy is the fact that when we, when we try to model their skills, we find that 
Actually, it's cognate activity. So related to speech is whether the parent sings to the child. Related to motor activities is whether they, um, they engage in arts and crafts activities, social skills, visiting other families, and so on. So it's almost as if you don't want to talk about a learning environment in the home. You want to talk about the sort of learning practices that go on in the home. Well-being. I'm going to say a little bit about well-being in older age, and then, <laughs> and then I will finish. So one of the things we've, we've done when we've looked at well-being in older age is to look at the, um, look at the constraints uh, as they apply to people. And these, this is, these are patterns of frustration, if you like, um, from the English Longitudinal Survey of Ageing between 50 and then to, to 90. And for, for men with or without um, post-school education, the pattern's rather, rather similar. So uh, the levels of frustration bottom out around about 70, and then as they get towards 80, they start to kick off again. So it's presumably the health constraints are starting to kick in. Women with education, no obvious pattern. I'm not going to say anything about that. But women who've not um, gone to university or had further education... The ageing process is much uh, slower uh, and they've got different aspirations, quite different aspirations. And so for them, psychologically, they seem to get less, just less and less frustrated as they get older. So quite, quite different patterns, uh, quite different psychological patterns of ageing um, there in this, in this particular framework. And so, so I, will, I will just leave you with that, just some thoughts about, uh, about why we should, or the fact that I think we should be measuring well-being in, these, in this sort of way. Um, and there are a few things that you can, you can say. Um, I, suppose, I suppose the, thing, the, the most important thing is that income often isn't closely related to our income, certainly for very young children. And even in older age, you might be on a fixed income and there might be lots of things that you can do to improve your situation which are not related to income. Um, some people have said, well, you know, there's a problem. If we start measuring this thing, politicians will, um, will try to manipulate our well-being. They'll try to make us happy so we'll vote for them. Well, well really, <laughs> what's, what's wrong with that? I would say. And then... And then finally, I'd just, I'd just say we've spent a, such a lot of time measuring financial transactions and monitoring those. And these are really supposed to be inputs into the things that matter to us. So why not try and even up the score a bit and try and measure the things that, that really matter to us? Well, a few um, comments, really, uh, on what has been already said, um, and also a, a different, slightly different point of view. Um, measuring progress and human development in the new terms which have appeared recently, uh, that is cap the capability approach or uh, measurement of uh, the quality of life or happiness, Certainly, this has been a major improvement. Um, so uh, this is going in the right direction. But um, I think I have two criticisms to um, the, um, this 
uh, attempt at measuring happiness or measuring progress. One is philosophical. We have what we understand under, uh, with the term progress is really change, going from A to B. That's the meaning of progress. Or increases in opportunities or possibilities of well-being. And uh, uh, Joe described progress in that sense, uh, an increase in our abilities to act, to interact, to enjoy, etc. Yes. But how can we be sure that these are really betterments? I mean, that, that something better is happening, not simply a change or a move. We can't properly talk about progress if we don't provide a norm, if we don't have a conception of the good. That's really the, the main, major problem here. I mean, so we need a criterion that would unequivocally show that the change is a betterment. We need the conception of the good. And this, of course, leads us into choppy waters. I mean, we share, obviously, uh, some liberal conception of the good when we say that freedom, rights, etc., are good. But how do we uh, justify that? I mean, so I don't mean in terms of universal norms, but at least something sensible, something acceptable by um, so either we, have, we present this norm as universal and then we get accused of being dogmatic um, in the name of uh, cultural diversity, etc. And that's really the issue uh, that Martin Nussbaum has tried to address and uh, trying to present universal norms which are acceptable within wide cu uh, cultural uh, diversity. I mean. So, um, or if we are more modest, like John Rawls in the political liberalism, and we said that this conception is really liberal and democratic and can't be um, widened, then we get accused of being relativist. So, progress is a very, very difficult issue. And talking about progress should be really, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's something which should be used more carefully. My second criticism of the kind of list we've seen, I mean, of indicators, is more practical. The numerous elements that are included in this list, or in this um, quality of life indicators, are too diverse and lack cohesion. Um, the list that Martin Nussbaum, for instance, presents is problematic. I mean, uh, how can we uh, see, get a kind of agreement or consensus on such a list? So that's why Amartya Sen has uh, really be careful never to provide a full list of indicators of the good life or a conception of the good. But it would be uh, easier if we had a more systematic uh, view and something more systematically organized to uh, justify the list. So it's at a more practical level. That's a question I would like to ask to Paul. I mean, is that satisfactory to have this huge list of items? I mean, um, is that convincing, really, if it is not systematically organized? And that's the beauty of the utility principle, of course, that it's systematic. So I'm trying to suggest a way to overcome these criticisms 
and to argue more uh, powerfully, more obviously, in favor of the capability approach, roughly, we have left out something which is central in Sen's approach, which is the priority of freedom, which is not simply a liberal value, but a humanistic value. Freedom of choice is what makes us human and not a thing. That's the difference between a thing and a human person. So this is what makes life worth living. So it's at the root of happiness, as uh, you mentioned uh, Mill, of course. I mean, that's really his view. So that's what makes life worth living, not simply a struggle for survival. And we can agree that any kind of measurement tends to treat the human person as a thing. And that's really the, the difficulty, I mean, uh, we are in when we try to measure happiness or measure progress. So I don't mean that human beings are not things. I mean, they are, but they're not solely uh, that. So what's the difference between a thing and a human person? And I came across really a very simple idea, which is in John Stuart Mill. A human being, like a, any living being, is a developing being. So the aspects of freedom we could include in an index or in an effort for measurement that would be that would go beyond this kind of reification of the human being could include some aspects of freedom which are distinct from what we usually understand that is rights and uh, formal rights and liberties. So how do you integrate such an abstract and contested value as freedom into an index? The first thing, in my view, would be to get rid of lists of goods or resources. I think the resource-based approach is contradictory with this uh, uh, recognition of the priority of freedom. So we should move from something which could be described as the container view of the self, of the human person, to something different. So we could, uh, following Sen and his criticism of what he calls fetishism, the merchandization of, uh, uh, I mean, the primary goods in the sense of rules, the fact that uh, the, what is constituting the index is not a list of goods. So we could uh, move from that view, from the container conception of the self, to an active vision of the human person as a doer, not simply as a consumer of goods and benefits. This is, why, this is the reason why agency is so important in the capability approach. So the ability to convert resources into utilities. So the second step would be to move to a conception of the human person as developing an idea which is very ancient, which you find in Aristotle, in Mill, in Marx, the young Marx, in Rawls and in Sen. What is human about us is our ability to design ends and to project, to project ourselves in time, past and future. The paradox of our condition is that we are both changing and at the same time continuous beings through our consciousness of time, memory, anticipation, all elements of our ability to produce plans of life. 
to rank our preferences, needs, and desires according to a time scale. So this is one main feature of what we call rationality, of course, but this is also constitutive of our experience of freedom, the ability to rank our preferences, not being stuck in one desire at one point in time. So to be the author of our life, as Sand says, is really to be able to organize it along the time scale. So I quote Nussbaum here, we want an approach that is respectful of each person's struggle for flourishing, that treats each person as an end and as a source of agency and worth in her own right. And that's what she calls the principle of each person's capability. So the capability approached expressed in terms of personal or self-development. And she adds, the human being as a dignified free being who shapes his or her own life in cooperation and reciprocity with others. So this view of freedom is not shaped by abstract rights. I mean, it can be the root and the base of the foundation for rights, but it's really this uh, relationship with the time horizon. To conclude, if we turn from measuring the mere resources that the self has access to or not, to listening to the human person herself as a developing being, we have a good indicator of progress in terms of agency and freedom. In particular, if we look at the temporal horizon for self-development that exists or not, we have an excellent indicator of quality of life and also of numerous social pathologies, to use Axel Honneth's expression, that go beyond injustice, like uh, pathology like being stuck forever in your territory, in your space, in your housing estate, in unemployment, out of school, etc. So that's really the, exp the experience of being stuck in time and space. And uh, I just came across through a PhD, I was a uh, uh, supervisor, uh, uh, I came across what's called border studies. The people living along a border, and in particular the border between Mexico and the US, and how people there are really um, stuck in space and time, and any, any possibility of self-development of happiness or anything is de um, denied, really. And so space and time are really the conditions or the values that could be added to a list or, or to, or they could shape a list so that it's more systematic and meaningful. So uh, I will conclude with, conclude with Mill. The free development of individuality is one of the leading essentials of well-being. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, all, all three of you. It seems there is something like a common theme emerging um, on the panel, namely that we ought to think about progress, development, well-being, beyond the narrow confines of income or looking at standards of living. But I don't think there's complete agreement, right? There is also some disagreement, and I would like to give the panelists the chance to respond to the respectively other contributions. Conveniently, Catherine is posing a challenge to both Joe and 
and Paul, right? And I take it the challenge to Joe is once we move beyond the standard of living, embrace, emancipation, equality, and so on, we get into difficult terrain. As liberals, we have to embrace the conception of the good, a particular conception, comprehensive conception of the good. We ought to be worried about this if we believe in liberal neutrality and, and so on and so forth. And the challenge to Paul seems to be, well, even if we ought to think about well-being, progress, development, beyond income, standard of living, we, we, can't, really, we can't really do it. Right? But, um, it's not practical, I think, is what Catherine said. Um, so maybe Joe can respond to yep. the first challenge. Paul can respond to the second challenge. Mention anything else you'd like to mention. Then Catherine can, can say whether she's convinced by, by the responses. Okay. Well, well thank you very much. Um, if we have a notion of progress, um, we need clearly to have a view of something being higher in a scale of progress and lower in a scale of progress. So we, so we need a relation of better and worse. Um, so we, we certainly need some sort of normative conception. Does it follow from that we need a conception of the good? Um, and you know, the logic of relations is very interesting. That there, are, there are many cases where you can talk about something being higher, taller, no, larger than another, without having a type of normative view of what would be the largest or the highest. Okay, so it, it seems to me the logic of comparison doesn't always need a, what would you call it, a superlative or something. Um, so, I, so just as a matter of logic, you don't necessarily have to have that. It will vary by case by case. So um, in the case of progress... What sort of normative view do we need? Now, a conception of the good, I mean, that can mean lots of different things, I suppose. Um, what probably no one would think is, is to be able to have a view of progress, you need an idea of what would be the ideal, most progressed situation. Um, so that can't be the type of normative view that one would need to have. I mean, sometimes people think that, that, that in the case of justice and injustice, for example, sometimes people think you have to have a view of the most just situation to be able to talk about whether something is just or in, unjust. Um, I, mean, I don't think that. I mean, and, of course, Sen doesn't think that as well. That's one of the, the views that Sen wants to oppose. So do I have a conception of the good? Um, well, sort of yes and no, I suppose. Uh, that's the answer to all questions. Um, I, I, I think really I've got a conception of the bad rather than a conception of the good. So that is, I, I know what I want to avoid. And you know, thinking of progress and equality in connection with work I've been doing on social equality. Uh, now, I was struggling for a long time. Uh, now, I've been defending social equality against distributive views of equality for a long time. But I stopped working on it because I couldn't come up with a compelling idea of what social equality was. I couldn't come up with a view of social equality that everyone would sign up to and, and think that's what we all meant by social equality. So I stopped working on it. Then I started again because I realized I didn't need a conception of social equality. What I needed was a conception of social inequality. That is, um, I, I need an account of what I thought was wrong with the world. And, 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 and then when you start that, you see so many... Other people have had that same view. So you can find it in Stuart Hampshire, you can find it in Judith Sklar to some degree, and Iris Marion Young. 
And with Iris Marion Young's view, for example, she says, and she's trying to oppose what she calls the faces of oppression, which include exploitation, uh, hierarchy, marginalization, violence, cultural imperialism. Uh, I had a few others. So Tawney uh, was very keen on opposing. So he's an LSE figure, isn't he, Tawney? Uh, should be topical around here. So you should all know that, that uh, Tawney thought the enemies of equality were snobbery and civility. So I, I like that very much, that, that an equal society would be one with no snobbery or civility. Uh, I also think there'd be no alienation, marginalization, and so on. So I've got a whole list of asymmetric and alienated social relations, and I think those are the bads. And I also think there are going to be many different ways in which we can overcome those bads. So, uh, though, in other words, there'll be many different ways of having a society of social equality. Um, you know, the Bloomsbury Group, on some interpretations, was a society of social equality. The Quaker Church is another example of social equality. Californian hippies would be another example. Uh, they're all very different from each other, but at least in the ideal accounts of all of these, they overcome the asymmetric and alienated social relations. So I think this is what I would think behind a progress, uh, my theory of progress insofar as I was going to call my, suppose I had a theory of progress, which is say I, I know I can give you a list of the things that I would want to avoid, including discrimination, oppression, hierarchy. And the, I would measure progress, if I had to measure it, in terms of how much we've been able to overcome or avoid those asymmetries and hierarchies rather than thinking that it matches up to some idea of what a good society is or even an idea of what a good life is because I think there are plural ideas of a good life. The notion of good life is contested but what the, what the acceptable notions of good life would have is o- overcoming these forms of domination and so on. Um, well, uh, fortunately I agree with all of that. Uh, no, but seriously, um, the... Um, the so, actually, a, a, a long time ago, I, I ran a set of seminars with a philosopher and a psychologist jointly together. And uh, I found that the philosopher would always come in with a critique at the end. So, whatever you said, so you couldn't win. Um, and so, in, in, in doing the work that I've been talking about, um, I, I very carefully got the philosophers in right at the start so they couldn't play that move. <laughs> so there's a lot of philosophy in, in actually in, in what we've done. But, but I take Catherine's point you know, uh, completely. And I, and I, I think um, when, it comes to things like, when it comes to things like progress, I think what we're, what we're doing is really saying, um, actually, if you think about... So if you think about progress and then you, think, you try to compare a life today and compare a life with... Uh, in Aristotle's time, obviously there'll be some things that will be better, but there might be quite a few things that will be virtually <laughs> the same, uh, or that you wouldn't want to, you would say, are incommensurable. You wouldn't want to rank them as, as being different. So I think what we're trying to do here is, is actually, and I, so I take your point, I think it's a fair point actually, uh, we, we, by introducing well-being into the debate, we're really only saying this is this is part of the conception of progress, and it should be in there. We're not saying it's a complete and overall measure. Um, in terms of in terms of um, possibility and, and feasibility, um, your, your your practical 
sort of concern. Um, I, 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 again, this is something I completely share. <laughs> um, it's very, I mean, nobody on our team can remember all the items on the list. <laughs> so this is, so we, we, and we've, we've tried to, we started off translating Martha Nussbaum's list. It has, it, it has 10 core items, right? So we thought that's, that's great, a question for each. And then we read the rubric more carefully, and we found that for each item, she's got six sub-items, and, you can't, and they're very different. You can't have a question for all of those. So we, we translated those literally into a survey instrument. We ended up with something that had about 50 questions in it. So it is a, it is a problem, um, and it's one of the reasons that, that money and income does so well in competition, because it's a single number. Every, everyone knows what it means. It's intuitive and it's, it's there. But it, it, it doesn't actually... The fact of the matter is it doesn't capture... It's not related to all the things that matter to people. So I think we, I think we must press on <laughs> um, uh, in this sort of endeavour. And an example of, of um, a group that has pressed on, rather surprisingly, actually, is the UK government. And some of you may know that uh, two or three years ago... Um, Cameron set up this task force um, through the Office of National Statistics and he, he, he asked them to, to actually go out and measure human well-being. What his reasons for doing that, I don't know. But, but anyway, that's what he did. And the Office of National Statistics took it on um, and they were given carte blanche. It, there was no political interference. And what did they do? They went out and talked to 30,000 people in the UK. They had workshops and roadshows and so on. So actually there's, quite, there's been quite a lot of deliberation. There's been quite a lot of consultation on this. And they came up with a, a list, a wheel, as it happens, <laughs> um, uh, that has about 40 items in it. So, so it is, I do think it's possible to generate some sort of democratic legitimacy. I take the points about and people have different views and, and, you know, when you look at this list, you'll see, well, actually, I would weigh these things differently to other people, and some of these things will matter more to me in different stages of life. But, but you, can, you, can, you can develop a list, and it has some sort of meaning and plausibility for a lot of people. So that's about sort of feasibility and, and, and possibility. There are a couple of things that I'd, other things I'd like to just briefly mention. Um, I think that we, 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 it, it's useful if we can somehow try and move this debate into well-being and see how it plays out in conventional economic realms. So, for example, uh, one of the things that a lot of countries are um, very settled on, agreed on, is the importance of free trade. Actually, free trade is fine for consumers, not so clear that it's fine for workers, particularly if it means that jobs are now able to move around the world really very rapidly. And one of the things that makes people unhappiest is the threat of losing their job. So some of these, so it, it may be time to start thinking about how some of these things play out in, in those spheres. And, and just coming back, let me sort of throw this over to, to you as a question now about your sort of, yeah, I thought you were arguing for freedom in a way that um, economists might have argued for freedom sort of 20 or 30 years ago. They were very gung-ho about 
uh, about the idea. But actually, it seems to me that you know we've got to a stage where we might want to we might want to think well hang on maybe there's maybe in some areas there's possibly a little bit too much freedom and maybe we need to think a bit a bit about coordination and certainly some developing countries are thinking saying you know there are situations in which free trade isn't very helpful for us so that's yeah that's Okay. Well, I won't answer, <laughs> and I, because I don't have an answer, and only questions, really. And um, because I'm interested in the practical as- aspects, I mean. So I was wondering, um, there's something called the uh, record of uh, European values. I mean, there's a big uh, uh, inquiry about European values. Is, is it a barometer? Yes, a barometer. I mean, something. So I think, in that sense, the kind of list you have mentioned on your uh, is is feasible if it has a wide, a wide democratic basis and if it is deliberative in its process. I mean, that's really something uh, we have to keep in mind. Um, so the source of the indicators should be really. Um, tested as democratic and deliberative. So I think that I would completely agree with you. And that's a way of taking freedom into account, I mean, and respect for people as agents into account. Um, I agree with Joe, of course, that uh, unhappiness and suffering are more, I mean, at the core of the of um, our definition of progress, the eradication of uh, Disease, etc. Yes, but again, I mean, if you mention uh, medical progress, then you have an indicator, you have a norm, uh, which is which is part of what you mean by a good life, a healthy life, etc. So again, I mean, uh, it's open for for debate. So, uh, what I was just indicating was that um, progress is a very tricky concept, and Unless you give immediately your uh, clues, I mean, your indicators, it's difficult to, to mention, to refer to progress. That's why development and progress are two different things. Right? So, because development has a goal. I mean, you want to go somewhere. Be it your, in your nature, as Aristotle, Aristotle said, that we have <coughs> human nature and that the flourishing of this human nature should be our aim. That's a naturalistic view. I mean, that's perfectly acceptable. But again, each time you mention progress, uh, you have a view about the good life, about the aims we should we should have, and that's problematic. That's all I was saying. Thank you. I think we should have some more disagreement, and to have more disagreement, we need your questions. Um, so I'd like to invite the audience to raise questions. If you could. Lead your leave your hands up for a while so I can I can see where you're sitting um, and there's a microphone going around if you could maybe identify whom you'd like to answer your question that would be that would be helpful we, we start over here thank you first of all and secondly I think instead of saying progress wouldn't it make more sense to say change rather than progress. Because, again, looking at the word progress and development, we can't grasp anything out of progress until 
we have a teleological approach. Progress to where and in what sense? Until we clarify that, we can't say what progress means. Unless we look at the issue from subjective point of view and say self-satisfaction. And second point is that looking at the technology and life standard and using them as a criteria I think is wrong because uh, having a better technology today does not necessarily mean that we are having a better life. Because technology by itself brings lots of problems. Very simple. Doctors today advise to be more active. So human beings made lots of effort to improve the way they provide or they make a car, manufacturing cars, this and that. And then my GP told me, just leave your car at home and try to work more. Back to your old lifestyle. So what I'm trying to say is that technology does not necessarily mean that we are... Yes, in a sense, we can say life becomes much easier. But that being much easier does not mean that it's better. Thank you. Any, any takers? So um, on whether technology always makes things better, of course not. Uh, it, I was reminded of, of um, something I read by a philosopher of science who had asked his class, what are the two greatest things that human beings have come up with? Uh, and their answers were plastics and nuclear power. And the question, what are the mankind's biggest problems? Getting rid of plastics and getting rid of nuclear waste. Mm. Okay. So you know, it comes to two sides of it. You know, if we were to talk about change instead of progress, um, of course there's change all the time, but part of the, the idea is to try to have, have a benchmark. Are things getting better? Are things getting worse? If you only talk about change, you don't get that. Um, you, you were suggesting that to talk about progress, we need a point where we're getting to. Um, well, that's really what I disagree with. Um, and, and, for example, if you think about Kuhn in Structure of Scientific Revolutions, he points out you know, this, this old-fashioned view of science. We're converging on a single view of the world. In fact, what we're doing is replacing one theory with another, and we can have a notion of improvement without a notion of an end state. That was really what I was trying to get across, that we, we can have a notion of progress without having that teleology of where we're going to end up with. So I think, you know, I, I, I think there are a number of very natural dogmas and one is to think if we're talking about better and worse there must be a best uh, and another is that if, if we're thinking about good and bad and this really goes back to uh, Katrina's comments there's some natural priority to the good over the bad uh, and, and so if, you're, if you have a notion of, of the bad there must be a prior notion of the good in your head um, I just don't think that's true and I, I think it could be that the notion of the bad is prior. Um, and in many cases, it is, I think. And I think that simplifies quite a lot in political philosophy. Um, and I think there's much more agreement over the bad than there is over the good, because I think the good is underdetermined. Um, but in any case, I, uh, that, that's hijacking the question. Sorry. Yeah. We'll uh, stay in the area a little bit, the third row right before the... Lady in the brown, brown cardigan. Um, what I'm curious, uh, because I'm working with technologies, is more about the uh, uh, aspects of privacy, which is and uh, accessibility to information, and uh, aspects of globalization. So that's what I would like to hear a little bit more of. 
how actually this kind of progress how will affect our future and what you think in this subject. Anyone in particular you'd like to answer the question? Anyone? Does does privacy come up in your... Privacy doesn't particularly. The only thought I have about technology is is really the point I might have touched on at the end, which is that... um, and it, it goes back to the, the first question a bit, and whether, whether easier is, is always better. And uh, I mean, ju- it's just a tiny little example. <laughs> but so, uh, in economics, we've we've defined market failures as being markets supplying too much or too little compared with what people really want. That's how that's the, been the traditional definition. But now, what we're seeing is, and and so, for example. Um, you see people designing cars and transport systems that mean you don't have to use your legs. I barely use my legs anymore. Uh, And that's fine. And then you also see people designing um, food stalls and, and fast food chains and so on so that when you drive to somewhere, there are thousands of places to eat, but you don't need to eat because you've driven and, and you put the two together and you get this huge, great big sort of massive obesity crisis that's developing, at least in the States. And it's, it's, it's a serious thing and it's beginning to be serious in this country too. Um, and, and, and so there's a, new kind, there's a new kind of market failure, I would say, where you, you're getting, you know, what's going on in each of these markets is all perfectly fine and rational and makes sense, but you put the two together and it, it sort of isn't. So I think, I think we've got to monitor. I think the market's really good at getting the sort of local detail right. If you want that done, that you give it to the private sector and they'll do a fantastic job. But somebody has to look back, uh, look, you know, look at the big picture. And I think that's a collective thing that we, we all need to do. So yeah, That's my only thought about it. Catherine, did you want to... Um, then in the centre, uh, Right, thank you. Thank all the panellists. It, it was very inspiring. Uh, I guess my question goes for Janison and Catherine. Uh, so uh, it seems to me quite surprising that all of our panellists seems to have a consensus on how, uh, measuring the progress, but it seems to me that uh, instead of me- simply measuring the progress, it is problematic for us to uh, define what element within the development or within the progress per se. Uh, for example, um, like take freedom as an example, as Catherine mentioned. Like, uh, we all it seems that we all agree that freedom should be one element uh, that be measured. But um, if, we, if we take a like a scaled down version, say um, dem- uh, democracy. Well, in, in the Western countries, in this country, many people agree that dem- uh, democracy should be the ends that uh, should be measured. But uh, some people in China share the view that democracy actually is a means. It's a means to achieve our economic well-being you know, in, in general. But in this term, that if we take, take democracy as a means instead of the ends, then this thing can actually be compromised. We can compromise it with uh, stability or long-term prosperity, so on and so forth. So I'm wondering, how can you actually... Uh, clearly define or distinguish from between the means and the ends, or uh, other words, 
the elements of development and the progress, or the instrument we actually use them to deliver this progress? Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's a very good question. I mean, because uh, um, we mentioned uh, technology and uh, technological progress, but it's a progress in mastering means. I mean, for what? I mean, it's a traditional problem. Yes. Um, Freedom, I mean, I don't want it to be uh, assimilated to democracy. Um, I want it to be connected with our situation in time and space. I mean, it's a traditional Kantian view, I mean, that we are determined by our position in time and space. And that's where progress can be made in mastering these conditions, or at least taking them into account and mastering them. And then politically, I mean, we, we started discussing that, that um, the measurement of uh, progress and, uh, should be democratically um, figured out and decided, something like that. So the, the political and the ethical are connected but different. So... But I would be happy to convince the Chinese that democracy is an end and not simply a means to prosperity. When I was in China in 1989, actually, we were discussing about democracy. It was before Tiananmen Square. And uh, we, we asked the students, what, what is democracy for you? It's a means to becoming prosperous. That was their definition of democracy. So, yes, it's a, yeah. I just say so. So, uh, so I, I, like you, I think I'm I'm nervous about the idea of measuring progress, and I, I think we've we've been slipping into talk about measuring progress, but I don't think actually any of us are doing that. I mean, Paul, you're you're measuring. I'm perilously close. You're close. You're close. You're, you are you are close. Um, so, so you know, why why am I interested in in something close to measuring? Progress and and I'm, I suppose I'm interested in comparative questions within one country. Uh, ask, are things getting better or worse here? Um, I'm actually much less interested in comparative questions between countries. You know, who, you know, which country is more progressed? That sounds to me actually quite a childish question to be asking. And if you were, and if you're going to say you know, things are better now than they used to be, and you said to me, well, how much better? What percentage? Again, you know, that sounds like a childish question. So I think um, you know, ordinal comparisons within one country make a lot of sense. Going beyond that, it looks like you're straining at something, I, I would think. So for that reason, I'd be against some of the quantitative forms because they actually give you more information than is plausible. I want to say something. <laughs> no, just briefly. I mean, I suppose on the on the terminology, I think you know this is this has been a debate about progress, and I've sort of tried to engage with that. I think measuring we're we're measuring well-being, um, but we're not measuring progress in all the ways that uh, income is used to measure progress. That is true, um, and so for example, I don't think. Uh, you can use our tools very easily to make comparisons over long distances of time, for example. I wouldn't make that claim at all. But what I do think you can do is you can look at these different domains, these different dimensions, and say at a particular point in time, you know, who's, who's doing well and who's doing badly? And the people at the bottom are people you might be concerned about. And you can also say, 
what issues are people you know, happy with or satisfied with and what issues are, are people really concerned with. So if I was being picky, I'd say really what we've got at the moment is an evaluation of change. So the change is happening and we've got one way of evaluating it. And it's strictly not a, you know, being picky. It's not a, a full-blown measure of progress. Question front row on the left. Thank you. Um, Paul, you talked about the integral relationship between progress, well-being, and happiness. Um, in that context, how would we interpret, interpret situations where progress for one group makes another group unhappy or where something that makes you happy is not necessarily in your interests or progressive? Um, well, I think, I think what we've, we've been trying to dodge the bullet of the first question um, by looking really for patterns of, you know, where, where all things considered something is, is better for everyone or, or, you know, it's worse for everyone or all groups. So we haven't really gone down that sort of um, interpersonal comparisons route that your first question uh, implies. Um, maybe that's essential, maybe it's necessary, but I think peop what people are doing now, what we and, and other people are doing at the moment, is really just saying, you know, what's the, what's the space in which well-being operates? And are there clear-cut winners? Are there clear-cut losers? Because if there are those groups there, then at least you can say, well, you know, a bit of priority should go to the people um, at at the bottom. In terms of what makes you um, happy, well, it depends a little bit, I think. Um, I mean, that's a big question. I don't have a full answer to it, but I think it depends a little bit on what you mean by happiness. And just one tiny example would be the fact that um, being a grandparent, having children, on average, slightly makes people unhappy. <laughs> Why is that? Um, well, it's because... It, in most cases, there's a lot of time stress induced by that. If, on the other hand, you ask people the question, are you more fulfilled, on average they are. So, it's, so even happiness in this, in this world becomes a slightly more nuanced and subtle concept than it was in the sort of traditional utility-maximising framework uh, of neoclassical economics. Um, just... Um the, the big sort of elephant in the room for me really has been, and I, I, I'm surprised that this hasn't sort of been sort of conceptualized by the panel, uh, really has been, is climate change, is the environment, is the whole ecology issue. I mean, you could, you could criticize, you know, really every panelist on that stage quite fundamentally and quite severely on, on that point. Two very specific questions there. First, can you conceptualize progress is separate from growth. So can there be progress without growth? Um, 
second question, can you, and Paul, that's specifically, I think, for you, can you conceptualize human development as an inclusive, it builds on the previous question, as an inclusive concept? It's very much seen as a zero-sum game. For instance, I was smoking for many years, and honestly to God, I really love smoking. It did make me feel a lot better, happier. I can give you endless situations where that was the case, until 25 years into smoking, my health started to give, but for 25 years it did make me happier. Um, so, you know, can there be an inclusive? Also, a lot of our happiness goes at the expense of the developing world. Um, so, you know, is, is, this, is this a sort of a justified happiness? Like, final question, have you seen the film WALL-E? Because, I mean, surely these people have reached the pinnacle of well-being. I get the feeling all the panelists want to respond. Maybe start with Joel, <laughs> Catherine second, and then... So I'm, so I'm very pleased to answer that, particularly uh, I, I misheard you at the beginning, uh, thinking you were talking about the pelican in the room, which is a very nice image. Rather than the, um, so, the, so I haven't read this I, I, uh, to the end. Derek Parfitt's new book, about, he says, you know, we've got to solve two problems. One is poverty and the other is climate change. And people say, well, it's impossible. You can't solve both of those because poverty requires growth and growth will cause climate change. So we've got, a, we've got this trade-off between growth and climate change. Um, is that right? The you know, growth and growth in GNP is, is really an interesting thing. I mean, during the recession, GNP was falling. You know, who was brave enough to say this is a good thing? You know, who was brave enough to say that you know, emissions are going down, fantastic. I, you know, I mean, most of us thought this is terrible in the recession. Much as I hate GDP measures, I want growth again. I think people wanted that, actually not for the sake of growth, but because of employment and unemployment. And our problem at the moment is we don't know enough about how to have employment without growth. But, um, and one of the few things where I think Margaret Thatcher was right, I don't say that very often, was uh, trying to get us to stop focusing on material production as the only form of employment and getting us to think in terms of service industry. And I, and I do think that if we're going to try to square the circle of climate change and getting out of poverty, we have to pay much more attention to service industries because they don't use raw materials, they don't give emissions to the same degree. The service industry, and we've got this sort of prejudice that service industries are not real jobs. We've got to get back to manufacturing, we've got to get back to making these cars that we'll drive around and to restaurants that make us fat and so on. Uh, we also get an economy where, which, which survives by everyone giving everyone else massages and haircuts or something, and then that will be great for the environment. Um, and is that any more unrealistic than people making cars for each other? You know, the, the, you know, why is one a real economy and the other one isn't? So I think you know, you, you know, there's a really good challenge in there about climate change, and I think we have to just rethink you know, you know, what employment is, what a job is. Catherine? Yes, I mean, <coughs> no, I, I agree that we left out the, the, the big question of uh, progress for the human race or progress for the whole planet, I mean, of course. Um, well, if you go back to Aristotle, we had a view of the human animal as, you know, uh, developing like any living being. 
And uh, so I think if we go back to this idea that we are on the road, I mean, that we uh, need this uh, projection, etc. So I think the issue of the, the planet and, the, and climate change is central, of course, because we don't have a future if we destroy our environment, of course. I mean, that's, so that's why I'm insisting on this diaconic view of uh, the human person. I mean, because as soon as you think in terms of gener- the next generation, etc., and the limited resource we have, and the fact that the planet is closed now, it's a closed world. Um, so, yes, of course, I mean, uh, there's no contradiction. So, progress seen as um, an evaluation. I mean, I liked your formula, evaluation of change. I mean, going in the right direction or not. Yes. So that's, we go back to this conception of the good. The good, not simply for myself, but for the global, uh, for the planet, yes. Um, so um, I've avoided uh, climate change, like like plague, um, not because it isn't interesting and important. Uh, of course, it's it's both of those things. But um, I noticed that people. Uh, I mean, it, it's curious actually. Some of this work on well-being has actually emerged out of interests in climate change. Actually, what people started so for maybe ten years ago, the Ministry of of um, Agriculture, food, and fisheries, as it, as it then was, started developing just these sorts of indicators, and it had at one point it had, I mean, I, you know, it had you thought fifty was a lot. It had two hundred indicators, uh, and it went out and consulted people, and they said, and, it's, and they it asked them what they thought of these indicators, and they said, but they're all about the environment. What about us? <laughs> what about people? And people weren't visible there. So, in a sense, this is a, you know, in part, this is a development out of that. And so, I think the two things, obviously, they're both about ethics, in some sense. I think the interest in the climate and interest in human well-being—they're just a, they just have different focuses. Um, and I suppose the, the well, two two other points I'd make. One is people in we've been a, we've tried to be a measurement pro- project. Um, but people talk about sustainability, and it's very difficult to know how, how you would measure sustainability for how long and what it actually means, I think. But maybe I'm wrong. And then finally, um, and Joe mentioned, the, made the point about em- employment. You asked about in- inclusive growth. I think this is absolutely vital. And if you focus on things like inclusion, then what do you get? Well, actually, you start to look at, for instance, things like employment in, in, a, in a new light. It's not just about creating productivity in the, in the economy. It's about being the main mechanism by which individuals and families are included in society. The gentleman with the red glasses. Hi. Um, I would like to ask you what you, how you apply the, the concept of progress to theories of progress. So we had different theories of progress, different ways of measuring progress for centuries. Do you 
consider there is a progress in the way we measure progress? Or do you consider there are simply different ways of, of, um, of um, understanding progress? And it's the same thing for well-being. Do you think that uh, there is one better way of measuring well-being and that the others are wrong? Or do you think there are simply different ways of appreciate what is well-being? Is that for me? Uh, I think that's for everyone. <laughs> okay, so very, very uh, briefly, um, I think, uh, yes, I think we are making progress <laughs> in measuring progress. Um, we, the, the concept of, of national income is 400 years old. It uh, goes back at least to the time of William Petty, who calculated the first national income figures for the UK, it was uh, 40, 40 million quid in the uh, 1640s, roughly speaking. Um, and, but it was, it was really interesting that he did it for a purpose. What he wanted to show was that the source of, of well, I probably wouldn't use this word well-being, but the source of well-being in the country at the time wasn't people producing gold bars. It was actually the efforts of human labour. And he came up with some calculation that showed actually about 80% of the country's income was produced by workers. So, so that, that, that's been quite a, a good and robust story. But, 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 but really, <laughs> just one number, just one measure? <laughs> no, I think we've got to move beyond that. And, and I think the, the sorts of measures, the multidimensional measures we're using now um, are an improvement, but it is difficult to kind of summarize them. And, and when you see, and there are people who will, and I've been involved, guilty of this as, uh, as well, but when you see people summarizing them and creating an index, you think, but actually all the really interesting information is in those different dimensions. Why would you want to summarize it all up? So, yeah. Catherine, do you want to? Well, I mean, speaking broadly, there was a very mechanical view of progress in the 18th century. Uh, gradual progress, etc. And then you had the dialectical view with Hegel and Marx that progress is the result of conflicts and overcoming the, the, the contradictions, etc. So I think now we have abandoned both uh, simplification and that we talk about progress if we have a specific goal. And then we can understand and we can assess it and uh, evaluate. But Talking about progress as a general uh, theory of history, of human history, is very difficult. I think we have more or less abandoned that. I think so. I mean, because either you end up as a, you end up as a pessimist, like uh, Spengler, I mean, saying that uh, the decline of you know, the Western world, or you. I mean, it doesn't make sense. I mean, this big generalization. So it's much better to talk about progress in specific fields around a specific goal, and then perhaps uh, have a better tool for measuring it. I mean, and um, having a, mm. a variety of um, deliberative approaches to it. Yes, think about. Okay, let's have another question. So we have time for another another question. Front one here. Thank you very much for a very insightful discussion. And my question is, do you think there's a point that we stop obtaining more freedom because of the trade-off with the responsibility? For example, if you have nuclear, nuclear power plants, we have more electricity 
we can consume freely. However, it comes with the responsibility to run it actually freely. Mm -hmm. So the risk of irresponsible use of the nuclear could be more than the, the utility or the happiness we get out of the freedom. So I was thinking if there's any point, the steady state point of the progress. Thanks very much. Well, yes, if um, freedom in the sense I have mentioned here is the ability to choose your ends and to rank them, then you take into account lots of constraints all the time. I mean, the, the interests of others, I mean, the realities, etc. I mean, that's, uh, there's no opposition between freedom and constraint because constraints are part of your ranking and the way you organize your, um, your preferences and your choices. So, yep, there's a, there's a tension, yes, but I mean, not uh, complete. Time for one final question in the very back. Yes, please. Uh, given the time, I didn't really expect an answer, but thanks to technology, Emily Thornbury and uh, David Meller, a social class seems to be back on the agenda. Do you think the concept has any, has any traction? Well, well, so social class is one of my uh, asymmetric social relations, which I would, I, I would measure progress in part by how much we've overcome class distinction. Um, you're right, it's back on the agenda. We're doing a very bad job of over, overcoming it. Um, I, I think, parenthetically, it's been one of the weaknesses of analytic political philosophy to ignore the concepts of social class and to think in terms of, of distribution of income, say, in taking snapshot views without looking at, at reproduction over the generations and so on. So I, th so I think you know, we, we have fallen down in political philosophy compared to political, some political theory in sociology, and that we, we really need to think harder, particularly in this country, about, about class. So, yeah, it, it's time for a revival of class and political philosophy. <laughs> On that note, I'm afraid we have to close out of time, um, but we do have enough time to thank our speakers and thank everyone who contributed uh, with their questions. <laughs>